Good to see you. Yeah, sometimes I, I say that. I want to kind of make some eye contact. Hey, Bob. But, but Bob has become my, he, he's invited me to swim with him uh, and a number of other people at CV on Wednesday mornings. It's been a real blessing in my life. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's good to look out and to, and to see you. But uh, welcome. And on Daylight Savings Day, and it's cold, and Messiah has let out for spring break, and so, you know, we don't have maybe the energy of the students here in the sanctuary and, and whatnot. Turn to Luke chapter 11. We're looking at prayer today, and I, I've got here something I want to read to you that was sent to me yesterday by a guy named Darren, and Darren happened to be our men's retreat speaker at this church three years ago. So you might remember Darren, Darren Carlson. Darren is now with his wife and his five children, ages one to eight, in Athens, Greece, for, I don't know, four or five months, finishing his PhD research. And so he has a ministry that he's kind of exploring that is a church network in the immigrant neighborhoods of Athens. And this is what he sent to me yesterday. I went to an Eritrean... Eritrea is a country that's attached to Somalia, so it's kind of on the north coast, northeast coast of Africa. I went to an Eritrean prayer service that they have every week. Started talking to a 21 or a 28-year-old guy. At 20, he walked to Sudan. Okay, so from Eritrea to Sudan. At 20, he walked to Sudan, spent time in a refugee camp, and then Khartoum, which is the major city there, Khartoum for three years. He then got a visa to Turkey. Two months later, he tried by boat to get to Greece, but the waves pushed him back. He then crossed the northern border over the river. He eventually ended up in a detention center. He's been detained 10 to 12 times over the last five years. Some people get stuck there for a year. He became a Christian in Khartoum. He has since gotten political asylum. This is just him telling me about the guy he meets in the lobby as he goes into wherever this is being held, this prayer meeting. Prayer meeting then started. The pastor admonished us from Ephesians 5 to, quote, wake up. 45 minutes of singing and praying, then personal confession on our knees, then prayers for the church to be awake, and then prayers for each other, then prayers for protection, then prayers for people to be saved, for people who are against the church, for people who are a bad witness for Christ. Then prayers for those who have fallen away. Then prayers for the sick. Then prayers for Greece and for the leaders. Then prayers for Eritrea. Then prayers for each other. Then prayers for the preacher on Sunday, which I thought was great. You know? Seriously wanting to cash in on some of that. These are are our brothers and sisters in a faraway place. And don't we remember our... Mission here, seeking the good of the West Shore and beyond. Then prayers for the choir. 
Then prayers for the Bible study and movie night. Then prayers against spirits. And by that, I'm thinking he means uh, demons or the ranks of the enemy in their effort to thwart us. Then 20 minutes of singing. Then grabbing hands of one person and praying for them. Then switching. (laughs) Then all in a circle praying. Then tea. (laughs) Two and a half hours total. It was great. End of email. Love that. Don't you love that? That there are, we have brother. You may not meet them anytime soon, but for those of you who are sons and daughters of God, you will meet those sons and daughters of God someday. And maybe it'll be in a million years on the street corner in heaven, I don't know. But you'll have an opportunity to meet those people who are in prayer. So we're looking at prayer today. I'm going to plop this back down on her organ here. And uh, you're in Luke 11 already. Prayer. And the big idea is this. You and I, as individuals, must pray. Or if you want that in just three words, you must pray. You must pray. I kind of balk at that, some of us, when we hear the word must. I don't want to be told what I, I have to do, ever. But the word is, this morning, you must pray. Why? Because each of us must have a daily, honest, vibrant, actual, real relationship with God. That's why we must pray. It is easy, relatively, I think, to pray and be heard by one another. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pray and my colleagues, the pastors at this church, are going to hear me pray. Or maybe I'm going to pray for a meal at home and my my wife and my kids are going to hear me pray. Or maybe I'm with my life group and they happen to hear me pray. But folks, the question is this. When I pray, does God hear me pray? Am I praying to him or am I just talking about him such that others around me hear me pray and think maybe I'm praying to him when in fact I'm not? When I am alone, How often, if ever, am I driven to prayer? Does the relationship that I have with him that gets cultivated daily by prayer, does that relationship actually exist? And where is it? What's its status? You must pray. You must pray. I didn't say this in the first service, but I'm going to say it now. kind of go way out on the limb and say this, that if you don't pray, just when it's you and God alone, if you don't pray, you're probably not saved. You're probably not on your way to heaven. Now, I don't know your heart, and who am I to judge you? But if that evidence at least isn't in your life, and only you can say, 
But, but, but if that evidence at least isn't in your life that there's something that is a, a, a bond and it's a permanent bond between you and God, if, if that doesn't get expressed by prayer, then you have reason to doubt that you're even saved. Now, that's a little heavy. <laughs> but it's true, and it could be crucial for people in the room. So I, I just want to mention that, okay? All right, so we're going to get into it now. This is Luke chapter 11, and Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount or at least the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 11 it says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. That, that's the first thing I love about that. I, it, it doesn't say that now Jesus was concerned that the disciples did not know how to pray. And so Jesus was going to kind of play a trick on them and try to provoke them somehow and round them up and stoke their interest and see if maybe he could have at least one of them notice that he was praying because he was really trying hard to model prayer. And so thank goodness that, you know, one of them at least took note and, okay, Jesus, if you've got to tell us how to pray, then, then, then go ahead and, and, and say it. That's not what was going on. Jesus was praying. And you read back into the Gospels and you see this about him. Uh, I'm thinking in Luke 5.16 where it says that he often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. Or maybe in your, your version it's going to use the word uh, desolate. He, 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 would, he would remove himself so that he was all by himself because he wanted to make a connection with the Father. That's why he prayed. That was his primary purpose. I have got to stay close to, to Dad. And I can use that word. Paul uses that same word in Romans chapter 8. I am with and for everything about my Father first. And I want to make that connection. And God, in his sovereignty, Jesus, he knew the request was coming. And so, of course, he's going to follow through perfectly and he's going to give them these instructions. But just please don't miss that Jesus was actually praying to God. And that's how the chapter launches. That's critical. That's critical. All right. And he said to them, when you pray, say. It is not a mantra. And don't we catch that that way sometimes in the church? Um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, that's not how it was meant. Sure, it may be something of a rally 
too. Okay, John, John has taught his disciples to pray, and he's passed on good doctrine, and there are things that they kind of will want to talk about. And so I'm going to give you guys something, and th- it's kind of a place to, to drive your stake. And you can have this in common as a group. Sure. But primarily what he's driving at are categories. Categories that have to be visited regularly. These categories. Okay? And then he begins to launch out into what those categories are. So, not a mantra, but a list of categories that when you pray... This is kind of the outline that you need to address when you come or when you go to the Father. This is your list. Hit each one continually. Father, hallowed be your name. I I love, I love that he starts with God. He starts with God. And I'm reminded that when you go back into the Old Testament, that virtually every prayer that gets recorded of any length in the Old Testament always starts with God. And every time they're saying true things to God about God first. True things about God to God first. That's what they do, all of them. Uh, It's what Nehemiah did in in Nehemiah chapter 1, referring to God as the great and awesome God. It's what Hezekiah did in 2 Kings 19, that, uh, you know, the armies of Sennacherib have come against the city, and he doesn't know what to do, so he goes up and he just opens up the, uh, the, the, the law, the scrolls, And he starts to pray, and he refers to God as great and awesome, and you alone are God, and that you're sovereign over all the nations of the earth. These things are true, they are powerful, they are about God, and he's saying them to God, and that's how he launches into his prayer. And Hannah, (laughs) there are a few people that I read of in, in the Bible who are at least come across to me as more precious than Hannah, this woman who had not had a child and she was mocked because of it. And so she's there uh, on, the, on the steps in Shiloh and, and she's praying, but she's not saying it or her lips are moving. And then Eli, the priest, sees this and he walks over to her and accuses her of being drunk and she says, no, not, not so. I, I'm just crying out to the Lord. And God answers her request and she comes back and she says, there is no one holy like our Lord. There is no rock besides our God. And she goes on and her whole song of answered prayer in chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, There's one fleeting kind of a half verse, maybe reference to answered prayer in her life. The rest of that whole song, all 10 verses, 
is I, can't, I just can't stop singing about God. All I want to do right now, yes, he gave me a son. Hallelujah. But let me get back to him. I just want to keep going and going and going about Jesus. He means everything to me. That was her attitude. I just love that in her. I love the Lord and how he shines from her in those chapters. But you see that, that pattern in Old Testament prayers. God first. It was God first. And and that they called him, Jesus is saying, start with Father. All of the uh, authority of a perfect Father, yeah, And all of the perfect intimacy, the nearness and the safety of a perfect father, yes. Father. And then another true thing about him, hallowed be your name. Holy. That which lets me know that as I'm entering into this actual communication with God, that uh, I just want to be careful because he does want me and he is near and he does love me and he's also holy and he is so exalted he's God and hallowed be his name and you know another thing I love about that is that it doesn't start with what I in my own mind at least have begun to refer to as the great evangelical idols Uh, at least here in the church in America, and I'm not necessarily pointing the finger at us, by the way, if the shoe fits, wear it. But what do I mean by the great evangelical idols? We've heard often enough, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the rich man boast of his wealth, you know, and idols of power and influence and those sorts of things that we we contend as, as human beings, fallen human beings to worship but that there can be inside the evangelical church in America, I think, kind of acceptable idols that we bend the knee to from time to time. One of those being worship. That we take what is meant to be a glorious means to an end, the end being God, but worship, you know, that I come and I worship him and I meet with him as I'm singing to him. Okay, meet with him as I'm singing to him. But that that worship, the means to the end, becomes so much to me that I end up worshiping worship rather than worshiping God. There's potential for that, and we need to be examining our motives as we are even in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning on our way to church. Why am I going? And is it because I really want to make sure I get to God? Do I see that I need that? But that's one possible one. Uh, The second one, you know, way out in the limb here now. Uh, Family. Family, I think, can be an extent. And it's not to say that if you love your family, you're committing idolatry. Heavens, no. But isn't it true that sometimes our devotion and our love for family can almost supplant our love and our devotion to God? There's a story in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus' mom and 
uh, Mary, and, and then his brothers were uh, downstairs, and they had heard that Jesus was upstairs with some people, and they wanted him uh, to come down. That was the expectation. Hey, we're here now. We're family, and come on down and visit with us for a little while. And so they send the messenger back up, up, up the stairway there, and when Jesus hears it, he says this, uh, no, no, because my family, my mother, my brother, my sisters are those who are right here in the room with me, and they are characterized as those who do my Father's will. And he does not go down to see them on that instance. Who knows how far they traveled? I think it's true that many times blood is thicker than water, but in Jesus' dictionary, obedience is thicker than blood. And, and it's helpful to remi- remember that, especially with you know, how much we are devoted to and love, seriously love our kids, grandkids. Yeah, you can say a lot to me, but you better not mess with my family. So I'm, I'm, I'm not messing with your family, I'm messing with you. <laughs> It's something to consider in our relationship with the Lord. Third evangelical idol, and I just want to include these three, but the third one is possibly, potentially, church, the local church. I can remember even living out in Chicago in those years and how often, you know, the biggest church in the country, the most active, uh, seemed as though blessed church in the country was Willow Creek Community Church, and we lived just a stone's throw away from that. Knew a good number of people on staff at that church, but how often I was hearing, not about Jesus, but Willow. It was Willow this and Willow that and Willow everything. And, oh, Lord, you know, is, is the bride meant to be that self-centered? Or wants to get to, wants to get to the bridegroom? Does the bride want to get to the bridegroom? Okay, so those three things. Jesus sent a letter to a church a long time ago, a church in a town called Laodicea. And in that letter, and you can read about that in Revelation 3, but in that letter he said, you have this self-perspective and you say about yourselves that you have no need, that you're pretty much good to go. And I've come to you now and I've communicated to you that you are five things, and I may not even get all these words right, Um, poor, blind, wretched, pitiable, not pitiful, but pitiable, and naked, and so much so that I'm ready to spit you out of my mouth. What? That's Jesus talking about a local church that was consumed with itself, that had such a high view regard for itself that it had lost track of its savior. I love that he starts with God. Father, hallowed be your name. Okay, now we're gonna run more quickly here through the text. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? He's driving at that 
which is just full of visible representation of all God's righteousness. That's what needs to be advancing on earth. But the way that it advances on earth is that it takes root in the hearts of God's sons and daughters. It takes root there. And so as the kingdom of God, all of God's values, all of God's character, and it's growing deeper into our hearts, we find that our perspective is changing. We begin to see things the way that God sees them. And not just to, to have our, our vision refined, but that our desires begin to be refined as well. And we begin to want what God wants. So we're seeing more what he sees. We're wanting more what he wants. And then the people around us in our lives are saying about her, yes, yeah, she's not like she used to be. And, but, 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 but I kind of think she's getting better. And I don't know what's going on with her, but I'm, maybe we'll go and get coffee and I'll ask. Or, you know, he's not the same guy. What's different about him? He's not who I used to know him to be. So what's up with that? Well, it's that the kingdom of God is advancing. It's advancing in the heart. Therefore, it's advancing in the life out into the world. And people are taking note. So that's what's going on there. And Jesus is saying, the second thing you, want, you need to do is be serious about that kingdom advancement. Living in this world, seeking the good of the West Shore and beyond. Be concerned about that. Third thing, give us each day our daily bread. That means just what it says. I don't think that that's actually talking about spiritual bread. And we know the, the verses uh, that, that, that will drive at that. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Okay, that's a spiritual feeding. But the Lord does know we need bread physically. To, you know, I'm going to take that, pop that into my mouth, chew it, and have it nourish me. Okay? He knows that. And so he's saying to us, there are times when we just have to cry out, and they're going to be probably feeling and appreciating this more in most other cultures, but there are times, and in fact, daily, we need to cry out, feed me. Just put a meal on the table. Father, I'm doing everything I can to provide for my family, and it's hard. So please make sure there's food there for all of us tonight. And he's saying, yeah, follow through with that kind of prayer. And, then, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. There's an ongoing nature to that prayer. Do, do you remember 1 uh, John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The tense in the original language there is that we want to be confessing as we go. And as we are confessing, as we live our lives, he's going to be forgiving as we are confessing as we live our lives. It's the same exact thing here. For forgive us 
but that we're going to continue to forgive those around us because there is very definitely the assumption here coming from Jesus that if you expect to be forgiven, you had better be a forgiving person. And that means everybody. I'm not saying that everyone. I'm making the point that you, in your life, need to not just be forgiving some people, but be forgiving everybody. There are some people who wrong me. I don't even, I don't even notice it. I, and, and then they come back to me and they say, um, you know, I'm so sorry because I've, I, I've done this and, and, and I believe that it's caused you harm somehow. And so please, I'm sorry and would you please forgive me? And I kind of look at him like, well, I don't even know what you're talking about, but yeah, sure. I've got other things to do. I mean, I'm rude sometimes almost in my dismissal. I mean, not, 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 not really, but you, you see what I'm saying? That there are some times when we're wronged and we don't feel it, and so it's just easy to extend forgiveness. Whereas other times there are people who have wronged us, and they may not have even had it occur to them. Maybe they never will. And we have nothing, if the truth be told, in the heart, nothing but hatred for those people. They steam me. My wife, Kim, works as a volunteer for something called the Office of the Victim Advocate. It's a state-funded thing. It has to do with restorative justice. And so what she does is she will have a case, and she'll go into a maximum security prison only um, with uh, the victims of violent crimes uh, to, to mediate between those victims and uh, the perpetrator of those crimes. She only meets with, uh, in the cases of murder, attempted murder, and rape. Those are the only three she does. And I'm not gonna divulge details. Uh, she hasn't ever shared those details with me, but I have seen video. And can you imagine, th true stories. A mom and a sister sitting on one side of a table with a big guy, bearded face, uh, orange jumpsuit, on the other side of the table, and then my wife, <laughs> maybe at the end of the table. And the sister says, I need to know what happened when you raped and killed my sister. Because I can't sleep. And I, I just, I, I imagine these things and so I'm thinking that if I knew the truth, it would help me to eventually gain some peace in my life. And so then the guy on the other side of the table says some things. And then the mom leans in and says, I just want you to know and we want you to know that we forgive you. What? Well, we forgive you. Are you willing, because I know that we're able, but are you willing to forgive everyone in your life? If the Holy Spirit has indwelt you, the answer to that is yes. You are able, but are you willing to forgive everyone in your life? Forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, for we forgive 
for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And then lead us not into temptation. We know from James 1 that God does not tempt. He's, he's not tempted himself. He doesn't tempt anyone. But we also know from Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus, when he walked the earth, experienced every kind of temptation that we could possibly experience, and yet he did not sin. And so we have this man who's 100% man who's gone before us and shown us that, yes, we can resist. You don't have to succumb to temptation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to men and women. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. Sometimes I get guys and they come to me and they say, well, yeah, I, I gave in that time. And, you know, my heart goes out to them and I want to say, you know, I want to work with you. I want to love you. I want to see you get victory in this area or what have you. But, but please don't point the finger at God as though it's his fault that, boy, the temptation was just so strong and where was God? And so I gave up and I gave in and I did it. No, because I, I believe God when he says in his word that he will always provide the way of escape so that there was a way for you to endure it. It's just that in that moment, you chose not to take that way. So that's all right. I mean, have you gone back to him? Have you repented? I want to continue to walk with you. We will gain victory but do not accuse God of having been unfaithful to you. Temptation. Okay. Next paragraph here, starting in verse 5. Let me read right down to verse, through verse 8. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, what a great word, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You see what's going on there? In, in your footnote, by the way, it may have... Uh, or you could switch out this word impudence uh, for the word persistence. And I want you to know that I'm, I'm crossing out that word, that footnote in my Bible, uh, because I just don't believe it's, it's true. It's not accurate. Jesus is going to talk about persistence later on in chapter 18. Okay, he's going to talk about the parable of the persistent widow. Eddie Cole preached about that parable last summer from this platform. But that's not what Jesus is getting at here in this text. The attitude is a lot more uh, having to do with um, just audacity, um, temerity, or um, uh, a boldness, yes, but, but joint, coupled, coupled with a shamelessness. 
that says, and you can put yourself in, in, in the shoes, uh, in, in these shoes. Imagine that at 3 a.m. one night, you have a need, and that need has got to be met, and it's got to be met now, and the only one who can meet that need is your next-door neighbor, and it's 3 a.m. And so you're going to go over next door, dressed however you are, maybe just in your pajamas, but you are going to rap on that door until your neighbor responds, because regardless of how your neighbor takes it, you have to have that need met now. And so your neighbor comes, and he's cranky, but he gets out of bed, because, not because he really likes you at that moment, but because, doggone, I want to go back to sleep, and you're seriously annoying me right now. And, and so that's what's going on there. God is not to be compared to the cranky neighbor. He's to be contrasted to the cranky neighbor. It's God who is the one who's standing there at the door in the dead of night. You don't even have to knock. I'm here. I'm so glad you've shown up. Come on in and we'll talk for a while. What's your need? I'm going to meet that right now. That's God. Do, do you remember? I, the freakiest thing happened to me one time, and the kids were probably seven and nine years old, and we're living, and this is, this is before we came down here uh, to Pennsylvania, and it's residential ministry, and um, it's, it's, I was about to find out that it's 12.30 a.m., and I'm asleep. The kids have been in bed asleep for a good two, three hours, and uh, Kim and I are both asleep. It's summertime, so the windows are open, but we're way out in the mountains, so there's no lights around. It's like pitch dark out. But the windows are open, and it's a ranch-level house. Okay, that's important to the story. It's a ranch-level house. And all of a sudden, in my, what I thought, I guess, was what I was dreaming, but I hear, Nate. Hey, Nate. Nate, are, are you up? <laughs> I mean, it was, it, was, it was terrifying. It freaked me out. And, you know, I, I kind of, and, and because of where I'm sleeping, and I'm thinking I'm a, you know, I'm a big tough guy, I'm a good husband, and so I'm sleeping between my wife and the door. I look at the door, for, and I'm having to squint because I can hardly see the door. And I'm like, what, what is going on? And I realized that there was someone outside the window trying to get my attention at 12.30 a.m. And all the lights are at my master bedroom. Right? And Kim is between me and the window. And it turned out that one of, one of the guys who was a resident at that point in time, he'd come back, he was drunk, and he's trying to get my attention, and he's feeling like he wants to talk, even though it's 12.30 a.m., and he's whispering into my bed. <laughs> and so I had to get him, and, you know, I said, Fred, walk around to the front door, and I'll meet you there. I open up my door, and I said, now, we are not going to have a conversation tonight. I mean, sometimes it's not bad talking to a drunk guy because at least all, you know, all the inhibitors are down and so at least you're hearing the truth, you know? And so sometimes, every now and then I'm like, okay, you know, you're really drunk right now, just let me have it because then I'll, I'll have plenty of ammunition 
for later once you sober up. So, but on that occasion, it's 1230. I'm like, just go back to your room. I'll watch through the kitchen window, and you can step back inside. I'll watch you go in, and then I'll know that you're okay. I'll see you in the morning. Just like the guy here, I was annoyed, cranky, because I was scared. (laughs) God's not that way. God is omniscient. He's full of love. He's sitting on the edge of that bed. The bed is made, and he's like, oh, here you are. I knew you'd be here. I I, want to talk. I want to meet your need. That's God. Okay. Last four or five verses here. And I tell you, ask. Let Let me just say this, though. That's the attitude that we want, right? That's the whole point of those second four verses. That's the attitude. I need, and I'm going to rap on the door until the need gets met. But I need. And God is there to meet that need. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. You won't receive necessarily on your terms. You won't get what you want necessarily, okay? But you will always get because God says you will always receive when you ask. I think it was the Rolling Stones. Uh, You can't always get what you want, right? Is that the Stones? Help me out. All right, good. I actually, it was the coolest thing. Uh, two days ago, I'm meeting with a group of guys over at Brothers from this church. We're forming a new man-to-man life group. And uh, I come to find that one of the guys at the table said, yeah, I was at Woodstock. I said, you know, I've, I've met a few people who are at Woodstock in my day, um, but, but not many. And I said, what, what were you doing at Woodstock? And he said, I was the lead sound mixer for the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I said, well, man, good to meet you. you you can't always get what you want. I asked, it was interesting, I asked him, you know, tell me about Mick Jagger. And, uh, and you know the first thing out of his mouth? He said, we survived those days. That's what he said, we survived those days. It was very interesting. Ask and you'll receive. And the one who seeks, finds. Finds the unfolding will of God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He'll take care of all the rest. When you seek him, what you will find is his will, not just his general will, but his will for you. You'll begin to discern the race that he has marked out for you. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. That's Jesus standing at the door, you knocking, him opening up and saying, hey, come on in to me, live with me. Live with me. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? God doesn't give us harmful things. That's the point there. He's not going to give you a scorpion. Have you ever seen a scorpion? When I was overseas one time, I remember lifting up some planks and there was a scorpion. And as I pulled the planks away, you know, it flashed its tail kind of like that, like it was going to just nail me. It was a wicked-looking creature. I mean, just cold black. You know, it wasn't that big. It was only about that big. But whew, 
God doesn't give that kind of stuff. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's given the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit is the one who fuels the asking and the seeking and the knocking and to have that be a regular thing. That's why the Holy Spirit is present there, or at least that's why Jesus is saying, ask for the Holy Spirit with this in mind because he can achieve this for you. All right. Oh, good heavens. It's just past noon already. We're going to do for two minutes something, a little exercise that's... uh, that I think really important. The question is, do you pray? Do you pray? Not do other people hear you pray, but when you pray, does God hear you pray? Okay? Do you pray? We have this thing that we do. We take guys up north from this church and we send them out into the woods uh, for a three-hour solo time and we ask them to go ahead and take a nap if you need to, but when you wake up, just turn to the Lord and say, okay, now what? And if that's all it is, fine. But then take an opportunity to listen. For two minutes, and George is going to come out here with the worship team, but for just two minutes, take two minutes to individually pray. And you can take an opportunity to think about any number of things. The NCAA brackets, by the way, come out tomorrow. You can think about that if you want. Or it's, uh, it's St. Patrick's Day, Friday night. Friday night, St. Patrick's Day, you can think about what you're going to do Friday night. There's all kinds of stuff. But what I'm trying to do is challenge you to say, no, Nate, shut your mouth because I want to get to God right now, and without the people around me, I'm not going to be praying to have other people hear me, I'm just going to bow and I'm going to pray so that only God hears me. I want to get to God, I want to get to him now.